Welcome back to the Lead Worship World podcast. My name's Christian and I'm your host for today's episode. While passing through Austin, Texas, Matt Ma popped into our office and we couldn't pass up the opportunity to sit down and record a conversation. And boy, I'm so glad that we did. Matt is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to worship leading and songwriting, but offered some valuable insight into the way that we can collaborate even when we come from different backgrounds. I asked Matt about his point of reference as a Catholic and how that hinders or enhances his ability to write songs that the wider church uses. And also why he's been quoted as saying he steals things from dead people. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. We could have spoken for hours on that day in the office. And there were some pretty cool moments where God was weaving together some of our stories and experiences. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Matt Muller. Well, Matt Maher, thank you so much for sitting down with us in the Thanks Wednesday for having me. today. Matt, yeah. you find yourself in Austin, Texas I today. Do. How yes. come? How did that happen? Well, I'm on tour. Yep. And I'm playing actually about an hour north in Temple, okay. Texas. And I'm on tour. I'm on two different tours right now, but this particular tour I'm touring is with a group called Mission House. Okay. So we're playing at um, Temple Baptist Church tonight. Amazing. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm pretty close to Austin. I can maybe visit my friends at Multitracks and, yes. and get a little lunch. Fantastic. And, in the process. So we're going to do that. That'd be great. We're going to sit for chat for a while and then get some food together. Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds like good. perfect Friday. Yeah. Here it is. So you're on two tours yes. right now. Tell me yeah. about both of those. So one is a tour called Sing Along, okay. which is yep. like Phil Wickham kind of started this tour several years ago of, of basically kind of wanting to every once in a while sort of strip everything back and just kind of go out with a guitar. And really the main instrument on that yeah. tour is the people of God I singing. Love that. You know, which I always say like that, that's the main instrument on Sunday mornings. Right. Is the people of God yeah. singing the praises of God and the presence of God. And so uh, that is with myself and or Phil and Leland Mooring. Yes. We've had two months where we've had special guests. One month it was Taya. Okay. And then uh, this past month it was Tiffany Hudson from Elevation Worship. Wow. And then going forward, uh, next two months it'll just be myself and Phil and Leland. Okay. It's a bit of a re- reunion tour. We toured together uh, in 2010. Okay. So as uh, 13 years ago, <laughs> we're back at it. Some more gray hairs and <laughs> children, and hopefully, hopefully wisdom. So you know, kind of part of that. And then this tour with Mission House, which is uh, basically a project that was started by two really talented singer-songwriters, Jess Ray, Taylor Leonhardt, both from Raleigh, North Carolina. They started writing songs together for a Monday night kind of prayer group, worship time, just sort of simple songs. And it grew into this, you know, sort of weekly thing now that I think so it was like a meal and a time of worship. And now there's like 150 people, 200 people wow. kind of showing up every week. And obviously they're not there because yeah. they're on the road, yeah. but they're sort of, you know, kind of carrying um, those songs and that expression. And we got a small band with us and yeah. sort of kind of un- find an opportunity for them to sort of unpack what they're doing. And also I'm kind of out promoting a new collection of songs called The Stories I Tell Myself. So you're pretty busy at the moment. Then. Yeah, after three years of mostly being in my sweatpants, <laughs> right. uh, I figured I would kind of dip my feet back in the yeah. water and then also use it as a time of discernment, I okay. think, because I think one of the things that happens in, in life and in ministry and even in music is, you know, the context of your life changes. Okay. And so as it's changing, you need to be listening wow. uh, to God and just saying yeah. like, hey, does this work? 
Yeah. Um, you need to listen to your kids, listen yeah. to your spouse. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're kind of dipping our feet back in the water as a family and saying, uh, do we like it when dad's gone? Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, we don't. I know the short, <laughs> an- short answer is we don't, but it's sort of like figuring out how much can we do yeah. to do the mission that we're doing. And also, you know, my kids are all three years older and I, I want to be around. Yeah. I miss them. Absolutely. So, so how does that tour in life work? Obviously, we look at tour dates and we see you play like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, whatever it might be. Is that the pattern here? Are you mainly playing weekends? Are you playing every night of the week? Do you get to go home in that or are you out on the road the whole time? Yeah, I think the, the question what I would say is that I think there's a lot of different structures that people make. And, and typically it does have to be structured because you're renting equipment, right. you're renting a bus. Yeah. Uh, and so with that stuff comes logistics. Yeah. And so you have to set up patterns okay. that sort of work. Typically, the typical pattern is sometimes either a, a Wednesday through Saturday okay. or a Thursday through Sunday. Right. And in in this particular context, because we were heading out more west yep. to Texas, we had to leave on a Tuesday. Right, okay. Which was also hard because it meant one night less home. Yeah. So this particular weekend is is Wednesday through Saturday, and then I'll be home for Palm Sunday, which is good. Because I'm also, you know, I several years ago, I started leading again kind of fairly regularly at two different churches because I'm a Catholic. So okay. there's a, the parish that I go to on Sunday nights. There's a group of musicians that sort of we're on a rotating schedule, and we volunteer leading music at our church okay. for an evening liturgy. And then I'm in sort of in the rotation uh, every six weeks or so at Church of the City downtown. Yes. So fantastic. Yeah. Trying to stay connected in the trenches, so to speak. I love it. Matt, there's so many questions I could ask you, and I'll ask you some of them. And there's a even a suggested flow of questions, but yeah. we're gonna go all over the place. I really want to ask if respectfully if it's okay, yeah. uh, about your background from being Catholic yeah. and in the world that you're in now. For sure. When you're approaching the idea of worship leading and songwriting, what unique perspective does that bring? from being from that context? And what are the advantages or disadvantages you found of being in this world? That's great. Uh, That's a great question. I would say primarily in my songwriting, I think what it brings is hopefully on a good day, bigger set of tools. Okay. You know, any songwriter who's writing songs for the church is, is bringing with them primarily three things, right? Which is the first is scripture. The second is lived experience of faith. Yeah. And the third is a heart open to the spirit of revelation. Wow. And the third one's probably honestly the most important when it comes to writing worship music. Yeah. Because you can write a very simple song that doesn't really have a ton of grammar. Right. Or lyrics. Yeah. But it carries with it the spirit of revelation. Okay. And, and with that, I think the lived experience of faith. So it's like you're playing guitar, you're praying, Maybe you're meditating on a psalm, a verse or something, and all of a sudden it comes out in this slightly unique way. Yeah. And with it, like attached to it, it's one of the things I want to ask God when I get to heaven. (laughs) How do you do this? How do you attach emotion, a spirit of revelation, and this sense of like a light bulb, a lightning bolt, something new is happening, and it gets attached to words and music? And so you have that, and then sometimes what you do is you have history, you have the history of the church, you have the history of men and women, like, you know, sort of the living saints and the saints alive in heaven who've experienced God and the things that they've said, the things that they've witnessed, and you sort of have that in your toolbox. And 
at the same time, the songwriting process is in the moment. And so you kind of have to just be willing to go wherever the spirit goes. And so you have those tools and you could say, oh, this reminds me of this or this reminds me of that. And I've been in plenty of writing sessions where people do that with scripture. Yeah. I just tend to do it sometimes it's with scripture and sometimes it's with things that I've heard other saints right. say. Yeah. And I think hopefully as you grow as a songwriter, you're just being more and more open. So I think liturgy carries with it structure, which is something that a song typically in today's modern age needs. Right. Songs are yeah. more structured than they ever have been. Now, that can also be a hindrance, right? Okay. So sometimes structure can actually be the thing that gets in the way of your creativity. Okay. So like as a Catholic, one of the things I always joke about is that it's like, we'll institutionalize everything if we could, because we're just habitual beings as, as creatures, right. as human beings. Yeah. Like we want to make a habit out of everything. Yeah. And I think there's a time and place for it. So it's like, I love the structure of liturgy. I actually find the maximum amount of freedom where I can explore the borders and edges of it as opposed to just kind of stay in the middle. Yeah. But at the same time, I think when I'm writing, I try to let my creativity go as far as it can. And at the same time, I think that that benefit of that structure also helps me remember things like, is this true, mm. what we're singing right yeah. now? Is it in line with what Christians have believed yeah. for 2,000 years? Yeah, we want to find like new methods, new words, new ways of translating things that are timeless and yes. eternal. And yeah, so I, I think sometimes that disadvantage can be that sometimes I, I could be too rigid in my okay. songwriting. Right. And some of that's just being a songwriter. Someone might be living in Nashville. Okay. We know too much now. There's there's <laughs> too much there's too much self-awareness right. of like, oh, is this what makes a great song a great song? Okay. And, yeah. Where I kind of find myself the past couple of years is I'm back at a point where I'm like re-embracing the mystery of it all. Yeah. Of like, I love that. Man, maybe I don't need to really understand why this is good. Yeah. Maybe I should just appreciate that it is. That's great. We were sat in this office with Matt Redman a few weeks ago. He came in and did a session and we were able to to chat to him and he was reflecting on his journey over songwriting mm. and the themes that have come round. But one of the things that he said that has been real life-giving is the idea of co-writing. Mm. Uh, and when he started off, it was very singular writing uh, and then this idea of more co-writing. And I can only imagine as you're answering that question, that unique perspective of having different people from different streams of the church yes. and different backgrounds must be really invigorating in some of those songwriting rooms as I well. think it absolutely is. And I think the more that you sort of allow space for that diversity of thought and opinion. Right. And you, at the same time, like you have to understand you're you're going to start from a place of commonality of yep. like, what are the things that we hold in common, okay. right? And so I think for me early on in my songwriting, some of it was coincidence, which I, there's no coincidence in the, in the world of divine providence, right? right. So- I happened to be reading a lot of Augustine okay. and Thomas Aquinas. And so I was just, as a believer, even though I was coming from a Catholic context, I was more focused on the sovereignty of God. Right. And so when I met a bunch of Baptists who were all about the sovereignty of God, yeah. we connected on it. Right. And at the same time, it's like, that's part of the context that I come from, but it's not the whole of it. Right. I also came to Jesus through the charismatic renewal. Okay. Some of my earliest worship experiences were walking into rooms full of people singing in tongues. Right. 
and me just weeping as yeah. a music major thinking this is one of the most I was a jazz major and I'm like okay. this is one of the most beautiful improvisatory sounds yeah. I've ever heard in my life right. like I would hope that every human being gets to hear something like that it's just so free and beautiful love it so I, I carry that experience with me so I read a quotation where you said you just love to borrow things from dead people. Like, <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're referring to there or the reading and the liturgy? And I think all of it. Okay. Yeah, I think of 100%. I think it's like, yeah, I say I steal lyrics from dead people. <laughs> you know, I think in the world of particularly hymn writing and worship songwriting, yes. we're all plagiarizing scripture. You know, it's the highest form of flattery. So... I don't know how this works, but I've witnessed it over and over again that there are seasons in the life of the people of God where an idea is very important. Apparently, it's very important to the Spirit of God because a group of songwriters who don't stay in touch and don't, there's no memos going out and emails right. saying, oh, yeah. hey, we're all going to write a song about this okay. in six months' time. Right. That's not happening, yeah. but it's happening. Yeah. So, all of a sudden people are writing songs and ideas and lyrics will pop up. And what that tells me is that I think there are things that God wants his people to sing about yes. and reflect on it in a certain season or period of time. And so, you know, scripture's full of God using anyone who will respond, including donkeys. <laughs> so as a friend of mine said, keep, keep being a jackass carrying Jesus to Jerusalem. <laughs> So I just think it's that is that thing of like I think God's will will sort of send it out and say hey you guys need to write about this yeah and I don't know and is how it works but some people respond and some people don't and so occasionally you'll get a song a bunch of songs about the same thing yeah I love it which is pretty I love incredible. it when it happens it's great before we continue thank you for the gift that you've been to the church thank oh, you man. for giving your skills and your talents to to songwriters or full songwriting to worship leaders. Uh, and I think we always love to thank the people that craft and give us lyrics to say things in fresh ways. But I want to tell you a story that's come to mind as we started chatting. Before I moved here to Austin, I was spending a fair amount of time flying between England and the US. Um, and I can't remember exactly which flight it was, so it's one of those many ones. And I'm sat, uh, and I got that lucky upgrade where you're sat in the aisle, no one's in the middle, and someone's at the window, right? Oh, so I've yeah. got that like, gap next to me. And there's a lady sat next to the window who's working feverishly the entire journey. We had no conversation until we're coming into land, and she puts her laptop away. And she turns to me and goes, oh, so why, what brings you to America? So I tell her I'm coming to do a conference, uh, and... I didn't really want a conversation, so I started off with just like, I'm coming to do a music conference. And she asked a bit more, and it's, yeah, it's a worship conference, and I'm here. And she asked a question from nowhere, do you know Matt Ma? And I was like, no, I haven't had the privilege of meeting him. I know his music. And then she spends the rest of the time as we touch down and landing, explaining how she's from a Catholic context and how she has just found incredible traction in her faith through the songs you've written, the music oh, wow. that you've written. But her phrase was that because... You came from a trusted background for her. Mm. It became a bridge for her to discover other worship music, other songs and other influences mm. outside of the world that she would have been in as mm. well. And she goes, I hope one day you get to meet him and you get to sit down and chat with him. And so just as you're chatting, I'm like mindful of that conversation with her. So that gift to put language to people that want to worship God through the, your skills is massively appreciated. Oh man, that I mean, th thank you for sharing that. I it's funny, I'll tell you this story. It was 2005 or 2006, and I was at a small 
worship festival about 45 minutes north of London. Okay. In St. Albans. Yes. And I'm on this field and on the grounds of an old convent. Okay. And I'm leading a time of worship and sort of like, you know, get done singing a song. I think it was How Great Is Our God. And I'm just sort of playing the piano and I'm sitting there praying. And I'm praying for just the unity of the church. So much of what drives my heart, which is really what I think drives a lot of my songwriting, is this realization that, and it goes back to co-writing, that songs create common ground. Mm -hmm. So in Ephesians, it talks about how, you know, as Christians, we're called towards the reconciliation of all things. I think a big reason for this sort of season of so much collaboration and co-writing is that it's people from different streams coming together, like you said, and songwriting becomes this place. It's like a safe space where uh, it's an exchange of ideas, but we're sort of kind of temporarily laying down, setting down our own personal agendas for the sake of this thing called a song. Right. And you want it to be the best it can be. Yeah. So I was sitting there in England, you know, sort of talking to God and just praying for unity in England as a Catholic, knowing the history yeah. of it. And it was sort of like clear as day. I mean, I don't think I heard God. I heard a phrase. I saw a phrase. It okay. said, if you want to be a bridge, you have to lay down and let people walk all over you. And so I think sometimes there's a degree of like sense of service, of a willingness to enter into a conversation with people who don't fully understand where you're coming from, and they might not even respect all of it. And that's okay. Yeah. I think it comes from a place of knowing how loved you are by God and willing to sort of step into a place of vulnerability and say, I'm willing to meet you here and let's find something we can sing together. And if we do, we're creating that space of common ground. Yeah. And we're sort of advancing that reconciliation of all things a little bit more and more. And so that's the thing is sometimes in, that's what, the thing I love about worship is that what it does is it, it, it sort of shows people something that's important to God that they had no idea was important to God. Yeah. And worship brings people together in a way, and it creates common ground. And I think the reconciliation of all things, including the church, is so important to God that it's literally the longest prayer that Jesus prays in the Bible. Right. So thank you for sharing with me that story because it's just, there's lots of people who call themselves Christian who don't think that the reconciliation of believers is really that of a, much of an important thing. Right. Yeah. And so... The idea of worship becoming the place where they can discover that, yeah. to me, is like the most beautiful, disarming thing. Yeah. Because it's not about you trying to convince someone something. It's just about someone having a revelation of God and Him showing what's on His heart. That's and it, you're not really involved. How amazing is that? It's like, really even, great. <laughs> even a lady on a plane talking to a Brit would use the word bridge. And that's part of the of you then sat in England here. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing the story back. That's that's so cool. So your latest project, Collection of Songs, that you mentioned is called The Stories I Tell Myself? Yes. Interesting title. Where yeah. did that come from? Uh, and tell me the ideas behind that. Well, I think anytime you, you record an album, a collection of songs, and then you sort of sit back and you're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. What is this collage or collision of ideas <laughs> and sounds 
and what's the overarching theme of it. And so one of the songs was a song called The Stories I Tell Myself. And it just sort of, it lent itself, I think, to be a good container. And, yeah. and so in some ways, each song is a story I tell myself. But the song itself is basically, it's either this year or last year. I'm a little bit hazy on it because I have kids. <laughs> They've ruined my medium-term memory. I still feel like we're in 2020. I don't know yeah, where we are, every year past that, it's like, what's going on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I wrote Your Grace is Enough, either yep. 20 years ago, this year or last year. And what inspired that song was I was attending a, a Bible study at the parish I worked at where a man was, was a Bible scholar. His name was Kevin Saunders. He was walking people through the NIV and the narrative story of the scriptures. Okay. So he spent several years teaching English to Messianic Jews. Wow. And they sort of, as he was teaching them English, they were teaching him about the history, the culture, and the context yeah. of, of the scriptures. And sort of, you know, all there's all these multiple layers of meaning uh, in the scriptures. And so he was just walking people through that. And we started at Genesis. And when he started talking about God having a relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and all these different people and how he revealed something about his character yeah. in each and every one of those relationships, it personalized the scriptures for me. You know, and there's this practice sort of called Lectio Divina where you're sort of reading the scriptures and and you're sort of imagining it in your mind and then you're putting yourself in the story right. and like, who are you? Okay, put yourself in this, you know, put yourself in Abraham's perspective, put yourself in an, an, an outside perspective, you know. And so when he got to Jacob, it rattled something in me in the sense that I identified a lot with a character who was very tenacious uh, wasn't necessarily always the most morally upright, right. but was persistent and willing and basically was willing to wrestle yeah. an angel for a blessing. Yeah. He wasn't willing to let go. Mm -hmm. And you could say that you could talk about his tenaciousness, but really it's about the fact that I think that God would humor him right. and wrestle with him. Yeah. And the story of that was really the thing that, sort of rattled inside of me and eventually emerged as a song in the form of Your Grace is Enough. Wow. And so I share that because basically during the pandemic, I really kind of struggled a lot with figuring out a way forward. Yeah. And some of it was I just spent 10 to 15 years straight in itinerant, you know, worship leading, songwriting, touring, yeah. performing. I wasn't like sort of primarily working in a church anymore. So, so much, I think, of me connecting or being in a touch point with God, it wasn't necessarily wrapped up in what I was doing. I never really looked at being on stage as the thing I was doing. I've always said that when I'm on tour, that hour, those that 90 minutes is the least important thing I'm doing. The most important thing I'm doing is the way that I'm treating all the people I'm on the road with wow. and the people in the churches I visit. Okay. Like I think the single defining feature of what makes music Christian should be everything but the music. Interesting. Everything that makes a worship service a worship service should yeah. primarily be about how are we treating people. Yeah. And I think when we do that and then the presence of God shows up in a song, there's no dissonance. Yeah. There's no sort of hidden layer of like resentment or bitterness or fear or isolation or whatever. It's pure. Right. Um, but when that context of traveling went away, yeah. 
and it was just like, okay, you're a homeschooling dad. <laughs> it was hard. And then it was, you know, being in my 40s and having a record label say, hey, go online and connect with people. Right. And everything in it to me just felt, it just didn't feel real. Right. It felt transactional. Mm -hmm. And so much about being a musician, I was trained as a jazz musician and, you know, studied classical music, but so much of my experience in music was being in real rooms yes. with people yeah. and experiencing it together. And then as a worship leader, even much more so. Yeah. And so it was just, it felt like such a weird, I felt like I was in a, like in an airlock. Yeah. Every time I would go on a camera and I would, and I still do. Yeah. And it's like, sing a song and pray a prayer. Yeah. And there's like, on the other side of it, there's just this dark void. Mm. I have no idea. Yeah. It reminds me of a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, where it's like, it feels like you're just, or maybe a lot of people feel this way, where it's like, I'm just, I'm just praying at the ceiling. Yeah. And I have no idea if I'm being heard mm -hmm. right now. And it was very emotionally, mentally hard. Okay. Just struggled a lot with anxiety. So the stories I tell myself, this is a really long answer, I'm sorry. No, this is great. You can cut it up. Um, <laughs> the stories I tell myself is me going back to those stories. Okay. Abraham, yep. Isaac, Jacob. It's me confronting the reality of all the stories that I was telling myself of I'm not good enough. Uh, stuff that I thought I'd matured out of as a believer. Yeah. Like I thought my ego was way more dealt with. Okay. And then it was really confronted. Yeah. I thought I had wrestled my insecurity or I thought I'd allowed God to wrestle my insecurities to the ground. Right. You know, people like Henry now, and they talk a lot about embracing the false self. Yeah. You can't, uh, and I think naturally it's like we want to sort of slay it. I think the idea actually, no, I think Jesus embraces it. And in his embrace, it dissolves. It's satisfied. The only place you're, you know, you can't kill your ego. Yeah. It becomes satisfied in the embrace of God. And then it withers. It doesn't become a subroutine driving all your activity. So that song sort of became a way of singing my way out of a hole. Okay. You know? And once I had written that song, it was like, yeah, I think this is the centerpiece and all these other songs are sort of offshoots of it. And some of them are connected and some of them just are songs written during a season right. that in some ways represent that sense of going back, yeah. like, like the Lord's Prayer. Like that song is like, in some ways it's going back to the basics, if that makes yeah. any sense, yeah. you know what I mean? Absolutely. So let's talk about the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, uh, I was even driving into work this morning. And yeah. one of the shocks for me as a Brit now living in America is I get Christian songs on the radio. Which, <laughs> and I can, yeah. and nearly every channel, right? And I'm driving in and your song, The Lord's Prayer, comes on. And firstly, great work. Absolutely love it. Incredible song. And it's definitely connecting really well. We see that from all of our top song charts and everything else. You open the whole album with that song, right? So it's the yeah. first song on the album, which feels unique. It feels like it's... You started to say there is a drawback to something well-known and familiar, but done in a fresh way yeah. and done upbeat. So tell me about the whole creative process and the idea behind including the Lord's Prayer in there. Yeah, so the song was started by another a friend of mine who's a producer named Brian Fowler, okay. who's an incredible songwriter. Right. And it's funny, in recent years has become more and more focused on just his church and writing songs for his community. And his church was sort of going through the Lord's Prayer. Okay. And he wanted to teach something to his kids yeah. 
so they could learn how to sing it and just pray it. You know, right. songs are just become that way of you attach. Yeah. Like I said, you attach meaning and words to a melody. And, you know, I think it was, I think it's Augustine who said, he who sings prays twice. So um, it becomes like this double prayer in a way. And he, I guess as he was doing it, he just kept thinking of me. Right. And he, so he just reached out. It was, I think it was in 2021. Okay. And I was in the middle of producing another album for some other artists. And he just reached out one day and said, hey, I've got this idea for a song. And I just felt like I was supposed to finish with you. And I heard it. And immediately I just knew, like the verse was pretty much, was written. And that's the thing of like, and he had started the chorus of where it was going. And I just thought, oh, this is great. It's just sort of laid out really, really well. Okay. In terms of the prayer itself, which is like a series of petitions. Yep. So the prayer itself, like in the structure of it, it sort of leads you through not just a prayer, but a way of praying. Okay. You know, and the idea of basically saying, you know, and we struggled lyrically, structurally with the idea that we didn't say, hallowed be thy name, which is why we threw in a choir singing, holy, holy. <laughs> okay. That, that was sort of the, that was the way because this melody had sort of just emerged out of just, and there was an ease to it. And the thing that I loved about it as soon as I heard it was, the first sound I heard was actually not the music. It was just a room full of people singing just the melody. Right, okay. And that was it. Wow. So to me, some of the, best songs that have ever existed are songs that's just a room full of people singing it yeah. without accompaniment. Right. And I thought, I can hear that. Yeah. And so because I can hear that, I know it. So I was like, I'll be down. So we arranged the time for me to come down. And literally as I was driving down, I just started singing the bridge. Okay. It's yours, it's yours, yeah. all yours. You know, the kingdom, the power, the glory are yours. And uh, and I think originally I was I just kept singing it's yours it's yours it's yours it's yours and it got a bit tongue twistery. Okay. So the original demo we had <laughs> for a couple of months was that, and I just kept sitting on it. And Jacob Suter, who's one of the co-producers of the record, when we got into the house and we were tracking, he came up with some chord arrangements because originally it's like the whole thing was sort of like just very basic even harmonically. Right. It's all just sort of structured around like very basic tones. Yeah. And so he came up with this like couple of chord changes. And then he, it was his who basically suggested, hey, what if you just went from it's yours to all yours? And I thought, actually, that's really great. Yeah. And because that's sort of this, the doxology part that gets added to it of for the kingdom and the power and the glory yeah. yours now and forever. It's such a great period at the end of a sentence. And I think by the time that we actually recorded it, we had worked on two other recordings of the song, okay. demos, right? because I was trying to show it to my label. So, But by the time they heard it, they were excited. And then when we actually made the recording, the actual recording that people are hearing on the radio, I kind of nerd out about stuff like this. It's actually two different recordings put together. Okay. So we recorded it live yep. in the house that we made the album in. Right. And we also recorded it like a studio version in the house that we made the album in. And when we got into post-production, there were elements about both that we loved. And so we just combined it. Fantastic. So that's why it sort of starts. It has almost this kind of a live feel. Yeah. That's actually from the live recording. Wow. 
and it kind of blends in and out. And we took a lot of the gang vocals from the yeah. live thing that we recorded and put them in. So it sort of has this very produced but unproduced feeling about it, yeah. you know? Yeah, the original demo had this like really driving electric guitar part. Okay. And some of that's still kind of in there. But more and more, and it's actually funny because I just finished a version, a different version that's going to come out in a couple of weeks that's, okay. m- that's more acoustic. Amazing. I'm calling it like the Sunday morning coffee version. Yes. <laughs> of like, come on in, good morning. You know, people are walking in, they're just sipping don't. a coffee. They're, just, they're not quite like, not quite that, yeah. they're not ready for like, you know, the rip-roaring yeah. version. And this, this, this kind of helps ease them into it. Great. Because that's the thing I know like about, I love songs that are the great first song that's like high energy, but I also know that that's not, as a worship leader, like that's not always the context that you find yourselves in. Like that's great for the 11 a.m. service, but sometimes the 10 or the (laughs) nine, you know, and especially in a smaller church, it's really, like I said, like the main thing is just getting people singing together. Yeah. And sort of creating that environment. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun, definitely, with the production. There was this whole intro that Taylor Johnson, who's a fantastic guitar player, we sort of said, hey, just rip a guitar solo at the very beginning like Queen. (laughs) And so he did. And I love it. But who knows? Maybe that'll come out in like some remix at some point. We need that version. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Tell what I love about the song from a worship leader that's looking for songs to use in their context in their church. I think sometimes we struggle to find up-tempo songs yeah. that we can use. Oh yeah, for sure. And sometimes we struggle to find up-tempo songs that have depth to them, yeah. that aren't just like up-tempo for the sake of being up-tempo. So to have something that feels like I can open, but it doesn't, it's not a throwaway song just for the sake of doing it. And that's yeah. no disrespect to other No, it's just some, songs, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Some songs it feels like we're just trying to get three and a half to four minutes further into the service. Right, before the real... Before <laughs> yeah. the room's yeah. actually sort of yeah. gathered together. I mean, that's that's one of the things I read during the pandemic that actually made me miss leading worship was they talked about the physiology of singing. Okay. Like people forget Christians are one of the few groups of people who get together every seven days. Right. And a big part of what they do is they sing. sing. And physiologically, there's all this data now that shows like heartbeats will actually link up. No way. Like brain waves will link up. Wow. So it's like God has wired the connectiveness of worship into the physiology of our bodies. I love that. So we're not just praying with words and a melody. We're praying with our minds. We're praying with our brainwaves. We're praying with the, with the beat of our heart, which is just beautiful. And, really and to beautiful. your point, you want a song that even if it's energy, it has moments, you know, which is I think what we tried to do at the bridge was sort of have a pause of like, okay, this is a moment of really like, in the lyric and in just sort of the structure of the arrangement, we're really trying to create a space for people as they're coming in to say, first and foremost, it's yours. It's all, it it all belongs to you, you know? So really really good. You mentioned uh, on the way to record, you said you were driving to the house to record Mm. and you said you recorded in the house and I've seen some of the footage. Talk to us about the house. Was that intentional? Was it significant? It's a big, uh, a, a big, part of just my own journey. Okay. In December of 2020, I was invited to come up and sort of sing a songs, sing a few songs and lead a time of prayer and worship for a group of pastors who were on a retreat. Okay. And that was sort of during kind of my lower 
point that right. I sort of was talking about of yeah. finding myself in. And so, you know, it was like a group of 20 pastors sort of all spread out wearing masks, you know, because we were still in that phase. And <laughs> yes. But I showed up to this house and it was a house that was owned by Roy Orbison at one point. Okay, He built it. He used it as a studio or as, as a house he would kind of have social functions in. It was purchased by Marty Stewart. There was a portion of land attached to the property that was the site of Roy Orbison's first home. Wow. He subsequently built his kind of next home to the right of this other house. Okay. But Roy Orbison's first house, he and Johnny Cash were next door neighbors. No way. Yeah. And so, and they were neighbors for almost 20 years. Okay. Roy's first house was this beautiful house built by the guy who built Johnny Cash's house. It was an architect named Bra Braxton Dixon. He built a lot of homes in the 60s out of recycled Civil War era wood and dismantled factories and fireplaces and wow. using reusing doors. So he was kind of doing the whole shabby chic. Yeah. He was doing that whole thing, you know, uh, long before Magnolia was. <laughs> but but the side effect was that he's, you're talking about wood that's 100 years old. Yeah. And so the house caught fire and burnt to the ground. Oh, wow. Killed two of his kids. So Johnny Cash buys the land from Roy and says this statement of like, I promise you only good will grow on this land. Well, eventually, this other house got built attached to this orchard. Right. And Marty Stewart lived there for a long time. So it's just this really special house with all this history. Yeah. And it was purchased by a family who were sort of big fans of Johnny Cash and were like that whole era of music. Yeah. And they would allow this pastor friend of mine to use it occasionally for retreats or stuff like that. So I went and led worship and it was just, it was C.S. Lewis talks about a thin space. Right. This place is a thin space. Yeah. It's sort of, it's on this lake. It just feels like a very special place. Well, I ended up, Five months later, being after being on this real journey with this architect, Braxton Dixon, I found out that he actually went to the church, the Catholic church that I go to right. uh, in Madison, Tennessee. There was something about the way he built houses that I think for me, I identify with as a songwriter, yeah. particularly with worship music, which is that I will sometimes borrow, I'll take old things and repurpose them. Yeah. And that's kind of what he did with his architecture. Yeah. Lovely. So it really was like a way forward for me. So I wrote a letter to the owner and asked him if we could borrow the house for six weeks. And we moved my whole studio into this house. I made this record and some other friends of mine uh, made another record as well. So the house just became this like sort of destination. Yeah, It was only 20 minutes away, but there was something about leaving your house every day and driving there yeah. and that just little degree of separation and then going to a place that felt like a thin space where yeah. you could really encounter God and be creative. Boy, once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm really fascinated by that whole idea of the recording and the collecting of songs from locations. Yeah, uh, I mentioned earlier, we were chatting to Matt Redman uh, not long ago when he was in office and he was talking about his latest project yes. and how he recorded that in specific yeah. uh, in the missions on the um, on the California coast. But again, there's something about the location that I really want to record and capture and write and, and be around that place. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we fully understand the mystery of why is it that if people do things with intention, there is a spiritual aspect to it that it literally can change the ground. Right. But it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, agreements are made with each other and with God, yeah. it can change the place. Yeah. It's both 
awe-inspiring and a beautiful notion and also slightly terrifying because it means the same can happen in reverse, you know? Yes. Which was one of the things for me, like at the beginning of 2021, I drove to Pulaski, Tennessee, which is like a couple hours south of Nashville. And it's the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Which I didn't know. It was actually, so after all the George Floyd stuff happened, I found out that the KKK was started on Christmas Eve by six guys who were part of the Confederacy Army who lost the Civil War. And I was like, like, what kind of a birthday present is that for Jesus? (laughs) So, but just, it it reminded me of like, you have the, it's the power of the tongue. You know what I mean? Like you have the opportunity with the gifts you have and the talent you have and the gift that God has given you to speak life over people and places. Yes. Or do the opposite. So it was... Well, definitely carried that into this recording. It really is fascinating. Uh, and it did a deep dive and a whole nother conversation. Yeah, I mean, just the, it's the power so, of worship. You know, it's, so why do people go to, I mean, look at Asbury. Look at what's happened yeah, with right, Asbury, yeah. right? What is it about this place, right. you know, that makes it special? And yeah. some of it, it's like, it's that thing of like, God honors the intentions of human hearts mm. that are frail and imperfect. But if they sort of together make a decision to worship him. And, and a historical uh, attachment sometimes in those stories as well. Yeah. So I know that one of the things that we have a heritage of as Brits yeah. is some of the older churches. Yes. And uh, we were talking before we pressed record around Alpha and HDB and there's been almost an intentionality in a lot of their worship spaces to redeem older churches yeah. and have them with a very modern context. But in these older buildings that often speak to the grandeur of God in a way that some modern buildings don't. Um, and it's yeah. almost like that's pulling my my attention to something bigger than what's going on because of the amount of craftsmanship in a physical space Yes, and the history. It's, it's just really fascinating. And I think it represents a multi-generational, multi-decade effort to sow into something that you will not see the end effect of. Right, wow. Which I think is something that I think particularly in a postmodern generation, we really struggle with because everyone wants immediate results. Yeah. And the idea of saying to a worship leader, mm. you're sowing into a community and the benefits of it, you will not see, hopefully, in your tenure as the worship pastor. It could be later when you step down because there's a young guy coming up and you're yeah. pouring into them and you're mentoring them yeah. that you're able to kind of look and see it, you know, it's, I remember being on a retreat, a youth retreat that was leading worship. And I was up late one night reading the scriptures. I mean, truth be told, this is, <laughs> I was out having a cigarette and reading my Bible. I've, I've quit smoking for almost 20 years now, but, um, <laughs> and literally like, I like dropped it. I dropped the cigarette because when I read this at the end of Deuteronomy, it's when God takes Moses and he shows him the promised land. He says, there it is. And I, Joshua's the guy. You're not the guy. You were the guy. Yeah. Joshua's the guy. Are you willing to let Joshua be the guy? Wow. And it was this moment where God showed me, it was very clear. It was like, you are going to have a vision for things as a leader, but I only want you to carry it so far. Yeah. And I, I need you to be willing to see the promised land of what it is that you've been working for and what it is that you've carried but I need you to hold it so loosely that when I point someone else to maybe carry it into its fruition, you can sit back with me and rejoice in the fact knowing that the vision will be fulfilled. 
which I think is the hardest thing for people in ministry, right? Yeah. Like, because our egos get involved yeah. and our identity gets involved. And it's like to have, to have the humility to go, man, I'm building the foundation of this church. I'm building, like, I'm a bricklayer. Yeah. I won't even see the steeple get put on. Right. Yeah. You know? And the dedication is amazing. Yeah. My mind's being blown right now. There are so many threads that God is pulling together <laughs> yes, in our conversation. Sir. It's crazy. Verbal no, diarrhea. No, do you know what? It's, it's so amazing. We went out for lunch with a local church pastor. a couple of local church pastors watching me just yesterday. And the whole story of Moses and promised land and mm. passing on to next generation, mm. but still getting to see it in an unusual kind of way through God's grace. And there we are sat here today talking about that. Wow. We're talking about... Uh, just so many connections as God's weaving it together, which is fascinating. Well, I think it's it's one of the things that's happening right now because you have like a finite number of positions of leadership like in every church, right? right? So you've got some people who are there who are going, I'm here because I have employee benefits and I have health insurance and I'm paying into my 401k. <laughs> yeah. And so I need five more years out of this yep. so I can retire. Yep. But then you have other people who are like, I don't care how much money I make. I just love God. Right. And it becomes this tension, right? Where there are these practical concerns and that are real. Yep. And then there's also, but like, it feels like God's doing a new new thing here. And it's like, I remember watching a Frank Lloyd Wright documentary by Ken Burns. And I was on a tour with Don Moen. Okay. Legend. Yeah. I remember us having great conversations and him talking about, having, you know, been the guy yeah. and we're touring Canada and we're flying from churches and we're just having these conversations and also him like talking about being in a different season of life and right. learning to embrace it and learning to walk into it and also not having all the answers of knowing what's next. Mm. So I'm watching this Frank Lloyd documentary and Frank Lloyd Wright basically was an architect who is one of the most celebrated architects in the modern era. Okay. Who basically in his 20s and 30s was kind of successful and then got like just criticized heavily and was sort of ousted from the architectural community. He was also a bit of a train wreck as a person. He starts this community called Taliesin. There's a very famous house in outside of Pittsburgh called Falling Water. Okay. You've probably seen photos. There's this like huge stone slab that's like over a waterfall. Okay. So he goes out and he sends all these interns. He's 73 years old when this happens. And this guy who owns a bunch of car dealerships, I think, hires him to build this house. So he sends his interns out and they map uh, the entire plane of land. Right. He doesn't draw anything. Six months pass. And they finally, they get a telegraph, like a tel it's a telegraph machine shows up and yeah. it's the guy. And he's like, I'm going to be there in two hours. So he sits down at a draft table, picks up a pencil and just starts drawing. 73 years old. <laughs> <laughs> puts down the pencil as the car is coming into the driveway and drew the design from start to finish, no stops, wow. and it was perfect. He knew where every rock, every stone, every shrub, every elevation of the land shifted. He knew it all in his head. He'd been studying it for six months. Right. And he'd been drawing this thing in his head. He was 73 when he did that. He built the Guggenheim Museum, designed that when he was 93 years old. I think it was like 90, between 90 and 93. And when I, that point in the documentary happened, it was like the spirit of God. I just started weeping because God was like, you live in a generation that values youth above everything. Right. But I 
will call the young and I will call the old. And I have a heart for both of them, but what they're called to will look differently. Wow. And so I think one of the tension points we have ourselves in is that we're so much trying to figure out how to crack this code of getting more people to come to church. Yeah. And so youth, because youth is really a thing of valued importance in our society, mm-hmm. somebody thought, well, let's just throw young people up in front of everyone and somehow that'll make church more accessible. But then there's a generation of older people who have tremendous amounts of lived experience and wisdom, and they've kind of navigated the valley of their own ego short-circuiting their ministry, and they're at a point now where they actually just want to pour into people. And we desperately need to find a way to connect those two. Two. So because I guarantee you there's a lot of Frank Lloyd Wrights in the church right now, Mm. and the greatest thing that they will build is yet to come. And it's just a question of like, we got we to gotta, we gotta figure out a way to connect them with the youth. Because yeah. it's like, we need the energy and the passion of young people, but we need the wisdom and lived experience of the elderly. And that, that's why like the greatest churches like are multi-generational. Yeah. You see it, you, there's like, it's such a diverse group of people mm-hmm. and everyone has a role, everyone's valued. So many, uh, I said it before, but so many amazing threads put them together and we'll, We'll bring this into land in a moment, conscious of, of your time. But we having conversations with different worship pastors over the last couple of weeks who articulating a number of different things to me. Post-COVID mental health struggles, yep. feeling that COVID robbed them of some of their best years, mm-hmm. feeling that there's a time shelf or a sell-by date to what they do in church and getting past that. And you, you've hinted and spoken to, to a bunch of those. Speak to me about that for a moment and yeah. some of your journey and, and mental health. And even before we press record, you're telling me about some great resources and people that are getting around that. Would yeah. you speak to that for a while? Yeah. So one of my favorite, growing up in the in the like late 70s and early 80s, there's like a bunch of like crazy sci-fi films that were made. <laughs> like we were really good at dystopian <laughs> films, you know? But one of them was a movie called Logan's Run. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. yeah. So like every, it's this like weird dystopian future yeah. and everyone has a jewel in the middle of their okay. hand. And like once you hit your 25th birthday, <laughs> it's either lights up or it turns off. Okay. I can't remember which one it is. And then they send these like runners after you yeah. who basically kill you. <laughs> <laughs> like so, the there's this one about a runner named Logan. Yeah, his jewel goes off either or turns on, whichever one it is, and he like has to escape, and he's like fleeing for his life because he doesn't want to die. Yeah, and so it's to me in some ways that it's like a perfect metaphor for some of the post COVID malaise of what you're talking about of people basically going like, I've reached my prime. Right. I think some of it is probably the physiological sense of the internet and social media compressing our perception of time. Mm. So time is moving faster to people because our brains aren't shutting off. Right. Like boredom is one of the most essential things to creativity. It's actually one of the most essential, essential things to like encountering the presence of God. Right. Like some of the most amazing earth shattering moments I had were moments where it's like, I didn't know what to do and I was just doing nothing and I was available and open and God showed up. Wow. Like silence is historically one of the most important things to prayer. And I guarantee if you talk to a lot of these people, they don't know how to be silent. Right. 
And so a lot of the subroutine that's running is they're actually not hearing from God. They're hearing from their own self subconscious. Yes. And it's telling them the, the worst fears. Wow. Which I think goes to the mental health aspect that you're talking about, which is like we left a pandemic and we entered an epidemic. Okay. Of a 200% increase in mental health, anxiety. And I think some of it is that we're, like I said, our experience of time is compressing mm -hmm. and it's having a net negative effect on society. Yeah. I think we're more honest than ever before about how we're feeling. Yeah. And so it's like this conversation about like things have never been this bad. The world's never been this divided. And it's like, no, I actually think like a friend of mine said, it's that we have the capacity to actually hear from people now. Yeah. You know, the people before that you didn't hear from about how difficult their life is, mm. you're actually hearing it now. Right. Like it says, we weren't meant to carry the knowledge of good and evil in our minds. Mm. We're not built for it. So some of what we're experiencing now, I think, is environmental. Yeah. Some of it is hereditary, meaning like passed down. Some of it is um, we're more honest about the things that we're feeling and experiencing. We're more prone to not know how we feel and look to things to tell us how we feel. Right. So people are struggling with words. You know, it's why is... Christian music so powerful because it, why is music so powerful? It gives voice to things that you're struggling with. Historically speaking, artists have always struggled with mental health. Yep. That's where their art comes from yep. is they go to the valleys, they go to the shadows, they navigate the dark places within themselves and honestly within the world. It's the same thing with comedians. Every great comedian is a comedian who's probably struggled with depression or anxiety. Yeah. And they found a way to just tell the truth and we can laugh about it almost as like a defense mechanism yeah. to diffuse it. So I think it's more and more important. And I think it's one of the things that we're sort of realizing now, like as a church, we have to start to not confront, but we have to start to destigmatize the role that mental health plays in the sort of the holistic wellness of a Christian. Yeah. So one of the things that I encountered the past couple of years is a ministry called Sanctuary Mental Health. Right. And I've actually just signed on to be an ambassador, okay. which does not mean expert. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> clinically trained. I'm not a, th I'm not a therapist. Um, but Sanctuary was started by professionally recognized therapists, psychologists, clergy who are Christians, who basically see the need and the importance to destigmatize the reality of mental health and mental health struggles within the context of Christianity Amazing. in a specific way. So more and more young people, more and more people are going, going to a therapist, yeah. trying to get their brain chemistry right. Yeah. Then they go to church and sometimes they'll even hear conflicting messages Yeah. and they're sort of stuck. Yep. And they don't, it's like, well, what do I do? Who do I believe in? Yes. And and the reality is, is that for me as a Catholic, the reason why I, I think that this ministry, and they designed a course, so anybody can take the course. Okay. If you go to sanctuarymentalhealth.com or .org, okay. you can take the online course. You can do it as a church. There's resources available for churches. To, you know, you could do a series on it to start to talk about it. And so much of it focuses on helping people 
contextualize their lived experience within the story of the church. But I'm, I'm fascinated with this because I do think a lot of the mystics in yeah. Christianity are probably people who struggled with their mental health. Mm. There was just no language right. for it. And it doesn't negate the power of prayer. It doesn't negate yeah. the need to be in a community. I think, in fact, it only reinforces it. Yeah. But it also embraces this language and says, hey, th these are tools that God has given us to help us as a people become healthier and more whole, more the way that he designed us to be. So good. Matt, I've loved this conversation. It's a bonus we've got to record it. I would oh, love to sit down and do this and love the fact we get to share it. There's so much we haven't had chance to talk about. Yeah. Um, so much from the, from the new record. Um, I love In the Room, listening mm. to that this morning. I can hear that tenacity that you mentioned in the bridge of yes. that song particularly. Uh, and there was a co-write on Yeah, that so one. we wrote that one really quick. The interesting thing yeah. about that song is the chorus of it and with a version of the song was written the week, a week before the pandemic started. Okay. And um, we were at, on a writing retreat in North Carolina, writing with some folks from Elevation yeah. and Mia Fields, who's a fantastic writer. Yeah. Um, the chorus actually came to her in a dream. And then we sort of added a couple extra lyrics to it and then came up with the bridge. But the verses never really quite landed. And then the pandemic hit. Okay. But that chorus and that bridge sort of became a bit of an anthem for me personally. Right. Because it was the thing that I missed. Yeah. So I just really got in touch with my longing for the church being together singing when it was something that I couldn't do. And I think also the power that happens just in live music in general. Like yeah. if you go to a great concert, there is nothing like being in that moment with those people together. Like some of my most trans like transcendent moments in life have been at concerts yeah. and just hearing a whole room sing a song together, everyone's hearts just kind of getting lifted yeah. and that going away, you know, the song's just about getting in touch with that longing and then what happens, yeah. you know, specifically as a believer, what happens in the room, yeah. you know, people whose vision is are spiritually blind or, you know, like their eyes get opened to the truth of how much God loves them. Yeah. You know, like people get filled with the spirit of God, the power of God. And, and you get up close with the presence of Jesus, yeah. you know? And then the, yeah, the bridge sort of talks about that tenacity that you see in the old Testament or in the, sorry, in the new Testament, particularly in the gospels, you know, where it's like, they want their friend who's paralyzed to be healed so much that they will tear the roof off a house and lower him down because yeah. that's the only way they can get him in. Yeah. And so it's sort of that sense of saying like, do whatever you have to, Lord. Yeah. Like, I, I just, I want to encounter you that way. Yeah. So. And it's such a great picture of worship leading where we help take people to the feet of Jesus that couldn't get there by themselves. Yes. And that, and it, I think in one of the gospels, Jesus acknowledges the faith of the friends as he heals the guy on the mat. Oh, 100%. And I love that. Love that because of the faith of your friends and, and that idea of a worship leader that gets to carry people. Yeah, that's what we're doing, right? We're so sort good. of trying, just trying to kind of uh, sort of help corral people yeah. to God and letting God do what do only he can do, yeah. you know?
Amazing. Matt, thank you for your time. We're thank pretty you. much out of it. We're going to go and eat now and hang out, <laughs> uh, which is great. But thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Congratulations on the record. Love thank, it. Thank you. Hope the rest of the tour, three tours, four tours, five tours, whatever it is. <laughs> well, um, oh, hopefully goes, it's not that many. <laughs> goes well for you. Yeah. And um, yeah, thank you so much for hanging out. Thanks, God bless.